It is Monday, January 25th. Our long national nightmare is over. It's just beginning. It rained. (laughs) (laughs) You mean you're talking about how it rained? (laughs) I just always wanted to say that, and it seemed like it was finally time to say it, but you're right. We have new nightmares have commenced. Uh, The rain was nice, though. The rain was like a refreshing kind of like... Uh-huh. Clean, cleanse the dirt off. Have uh were you were you were satisfied with the rain, Alyssa? Were you Well Scott? we have more. I'm we satisfied more. that I'm satisfied that there's more coming. So we got point three eight inches yesterday. What will you be satisfied with for the Saturday to Saturday week long total? We Five talk- inches. Five is the is the over under. We talked about last week like where we were at annually right and it's really bad it's really bad I don't, I don't remember where we at but one inch would be great i feel like. one inch for the week i'm gonna say an inch and a half i'll take an inch and a half for okay. the week i have a quick la story to launch us into what is a great episode we have a guest for this episode who's excellent culver city city council member that has to change i've been saying this i, I like culver city city mm-hmm. twice in a row we can't keep doing this culver city city council member Culver City. Just become, if Culver City just became part of LA, we would solve sure. the problem. Or they can be aldermen. I don't care what it is, but something has to change. Culver City City Council member. LA's Daniel Burrow. <laughs> <laughs> and Vice Mayor Daniel Wayne Lee is here to talk about. He's also a candidate for the California State Senate District 30, but he's here to talk about how Culver City had a very unique election on November 3rd and has kind of become, unusually for Culver City, sort of a bastion for progressive housing policy. But we're also going to talk about a lot of stuff related to COVID and new strains and are we on the other side of the peak and new reimbursement rules for FEMA around non-congregate shelters and the LA Times building. And some other exciting stuff. But first, something that happened online. This is an L.A. story online edition. And this this covers a lot of ground, but I'll try to be quick. So Sammy Roth, we all know Sammy Roth, L.A. Times reporter, has the covers the climate and energy beat, has a, a newsletter called Boiling Point. Mm-hmm. That is great that everyone should subscribe to. Scariest I'm name a huge... for a newsletter, I think, that I could possibly imagine. Right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm a huge fan, and so I, you know, I'm always taking an opportunity to to, to get in the mentions. And he hosts a, a, a podcast also about Lost. He's a big fan of the show Lost, and he he, he hosts a show called The Hatch. Uh-huh. And they had on as a guest a guy named Patrick Fischler, an actor. And Patrick Fischler, to me, is most famous. Alyssa, you don't know him from this because you refuse to watch this movie. But from Mulholland Drive, have you seen it, Scott? Mulholland Drive? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. He's the guy who goes in back of Winkies. He had a dream, and he goes in back of Winkies to, yeah. see, to look behind the dumpster. Right. Great character actor, incredible face, mm-hmm. instantly recognizable. And he was also on Lost, and so he has, has a guest right. on the show. And I responded, and I was like, I, I love Patrick Fischler. Do you know Patrick Fischler's relevance to the city of Los Angeles and the semi-iconic place in L.A. No. There's a place on the PCH called Patrick's Roadhouse, which, like, you, you know it, Alyssa. It's like a it's wacky... Like right, right when you're going out of Santa Monica and heading north. Yes, and it's got, Number like, one. a bunch of 
gigaws out front and like a Statue of Liberty and all this crazy stuff. Gigaws. Uh, and doodads and all that. It's like a fun roadside diner type place. It is named after Patrick Fischler. Wow. It was his dad that started the restaurant and when he was like the youngest son. And so that's why it's called Patrick's Roadhouse. And so I, you know, the, the, the people, friends of the show, or friend Seamus Garrity jumps in and we're, we're talking about Patrick's Roadhouse uh, and how it's apparently very famous for banana cream pie and also for Arnold Schwarzenegger going there a lot. We were talking about other banana cream pie uh, favorites. I like apple pan. Some people like the former Babaloo's in uh, Santa Monica, if you ever went there. And at some point, I hypothesized that, that Patrick Schwarzenegger, son of Arnold Schwarzenegger, might be named after Patrick's Roadhouse. That's like a pretty <laughs> strong possibility to me. And then Patrick Schwarzenegger got in the mentions to say that Babalu Oreo banana pie was the best pie that he's ever had. <laughs> and no comment on the other uh, No comment on the rumors that he is named after <laughs> Or that Patrick he was Schroeder. conceived there or anything sure. like that. That, yeah. that would be even better. Wow, that is a great LA story. It and all virtual too. It's yep. like just running, running into people in the mentions. Poor so, Sammy. Sammy's yeah. like, I didn't <laughs> yeah, Sammy didn't ask for this. No. Just, he's tagged in everything, but he was a willing participant. Okay, let's talk about the novel coronavirus. We appear to be, we got some good numbers. This way we're not good, but good in comparison to what we've had in the past. The number of positive cases are falling. That could be due to a number of factors. We closed the biggest testing facility in, in the country. In Dodger Stadium, converted it to a to a vaccine site, and also there was a uh, the holiday. There was Martin Luther King Day, but at the same time, the number of people hospital hospitalized with COVID is also falling, which is a, a more objective measure of exactly how bad the outbreak is here. And like we saw, we've now seen instead of just a constant upward spike in hospitalizations, we're now in the other just barely over a little hill which is any anything that's not upward movement is a really positive sign yep. in la county at the same time we do have ongoing issues with getting the vaccines out there not just in la but in all of california what are we seeing Alyssa, in this state we are last last i think we're still last we used to be looking back at Alabama, but then they <laughs> burst ahead. Yeah, I mean, and and not, I, we got, yeah, we got worse. It was like, I think we were 46 and now we're 50th. And that's pretty bad because like, at least in Alabama, they can say ideologically, they don't care if a large number of the people there ever get vaccinated. Whereas we are ostensibly we trying. We ostensibly care. <laughs> yes. Are we trying? <laughs> well, I mean, you wouldn't know it to look. And what's really weird too, and what became national news this week, in addition to the recall Gavin Newsom campaign mm -hmm. getting a lot of money, but it which they ostensibly say is about this, but it's not really, I don't think that people are motivated by this particular crisis mm -hmm. exclusively, but the, the, the data that's being put out, I guess they, the governor's office isn't able to fully explain it. And I saw the quote was something like, we can't really release 
firm numbers on this because we use a very careful calculation that no one would understand if we if we tried to explain it to you. Uh-huh. Which, hmm. <laughs> transparency. We're, we're protecting you. Yeah. From, yeah. Your, Thank you. from your own ignorance. <laughs> Thank you for not hurting my small brain. So that was also troubling. Yeah. And I just want to make clear what we're 50th in is is not even like percentage of uh, of residents of California that have been vaccinated. It's the percentage of vaccinations given to us that we've been able to inject in Correct. people. Right. Correct. Which is arguably worse. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing issues. There's a big article in the L.A. Times by Julia Wick and Haley Smith about vaccine chasers, which is a, a phenomenon we would sort of heard about where there's like a rumor mill for vaccination facilities and sites that at the end of the day sometimes have leftovers like, you know, croissants. Was that your comparison Scott, that like? Uh, I saw that somewhere. That, that's the like. That's basically the model. You can go get a little discount uh, and uh, an early access to your vaccine if you're in the right place at the right time. And one of those facilities is Kedron Community Health Center in South LA, where lots of people who are not from South LA are lining up to with iPads and snacks and just having a little picnic and waiting to get the vaccine at the end of the mm-hmm. day. I think the results have been mixed in terms of people's how to the degree to which this has worked but sometimes they say like yeah 40 or 50 people that show up get the vaccine early Uh, and i've seen a lot of discourse around this phenomenon and i'm curious to hear to hear what both of you think there are people who say like we got to get the vaccine into people and it's better than it being thrown away but is that sort of a cop out for, you know, what is clearly not how the system is is supposed to be working? I think the thing that I was really frustrated about this week was knowing that the 65 and older group would be coming up next, but not making any kind of special considerations for people who are older. And it's not the same as going to drive and get a test. I think most people who are getting tested are probably younger workers, maybe. Um, this is trying to get people to places who might not drive, might not have a car, might need to go to the bathroom. You know, mm-hmm. we have all these situations where it's a completely different type of situation, waiting very long times. There was uh, a lot of stories the night, uh, the first night it was open at Dodger Stadium with people who were waiting like four and five hours. And yes, of course, these things have, you know, hiccups on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the growing pains of trying to turn the largest testing site to the largest vaccination site. I understand. But it doesn't seem like any thought was putting into how are we going to get one of the most vulnerable parts of our population to get a shot. Right. And mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like that was, you know, was calculated um, properly and and still doesn't. So I I don't know how this was supposed to yeah, work. This article says that a, a lot of seniors end up going to uh, these like rumored sites to get a vaccine because it's easier for them to do that than to actually find an appointment that they are now eligible for. Yeah. Which, yeah, that's... It's That's a, a problem. It's a fa- not only is it a failure, it's an ongoing failure. I think what Alyssa said is exactly right. There's not an indication that anything is 
uh, changing fast enough in order to turn this uh, this large scale effort to vaccinate California's population into into a success. And by mm-hmm. what I mean by that, of course, eventually we will get to a point where everybody in California who uh, who is willing has the ability to get vaccinated. I think it's pretty clear that that is a matter of time, whether or not it is the result of an administrative process that is that is successful or floundering. I think we are clearly in the latter camp and it seems like we're likely to stay there. What I am... You know what? What I think is is interesting that we have a, a a surfeit of in California is politicians who have the ability to, because the content of the politics is so different in California than in the rest of the country as a rule. We have a lot of politicians who are able to cast their failures as not comparable to things that have gone well in other in other places. We talk in our in our interview that you'll hear later with Councilmember Councilmember Lee about California exceptionalism. And and I think that we do have a lot of that here where we talk about uh we have we have the mayor or the governor saying we've done these things and yeah, it looks like it's not going well, but we're we're doing something so progressive. We're focusing on equity. We're you know blah 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 things that that essentially amount to just words, uh, and there are not good results to show when there could and should be. And, and I think that that generally does just come about because we have a, a single, basically a single party state where the the organized ability for for any credible opposition to say this is not going well, not because it's a progressive policy and I don't like progressive policies, but because there is a lot of incompetence. You know, that we had the EDD scandal with Gavin Newsom. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of issues with Mayor Garcetti's handling of, of the pandemic. And they just don't resolve n- n- nicely into a... Democrat Republican dichotomy. We don't have really. Uh, we we really just don't have that much ability. I think within the current media structure to get at why are these particular programs failing? Like what right. are what is actually the administrative right. failure here? And I feel like that that is really lacking still. There's a the, the, like you know the systemic failure is one thing. I, I do think there's a personal responsibility and morality question too of like if you know i i I have seen the excuse used a lot uh, and that's how i've kind of thought too of like yeah this is available like you just have to get it because otherwise it's going to get thrown away but this is you know something we've seen play out a lot in different ways in la that the fight for the vaccine has become yet another fight for scarce resources created by a systemic failure with, with like access to affordable housing and even like clean air in the city and now it's the same thing where these the scraps are like thrown out in the city and it's just like a scramble for them and it does make me kind of wonder i haven't done this and i was just like thinking about it today but if people put the same energy into go finding a place to go get the shot uh and using the excuse that that it is going to be thrown out otherwise into helping an older person uh like try and get it 
that was the puzzling part of that story in particular. Of like, if you had one shot, what what would you do? You'd yeah, get yourself one, a twenty one yes. year old. <laughs> One opportunity. <laughs> Give it to me. I'm brave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the other thing, too, that I just kept like going around in my head, the confusion, you know, also trying to help somebody. We saw like Claudia Pashuda once again, yeah. being the you know ray of light. She's like, I spent my whole night getting people signed up on this website, which is very confusing. So the, the layer of that, too, of that throws on top of everything, like people who aren't normally used to perhaps navigating these very complicated um, sign-up systems, having to figure that out, but also just not knowing physically where these locations are, right. except for the Dodger Stadium, which is very famous. And then, you know, not knowing how easy it will be to access, you know, one, even though it's by you. And then some of the testing is pop-up and will be there, but it won't be there tomorrow. So it's, we could have used places that stayed put and, and like I, the one thing I thought of was like the way we're doing food distribution at, LAUSD schools, like everybody knows where you have to go if you want to get grab and go meals. It hasn't changed the entire pandemic. They have car lanes blocked off in the morning and they could just use that the rest of the day. You know, it's just we have systems in place. We had this energy directed towards alfresco dining mm -hmm. pavilions that are now empty. And that could have been to the scale of what we see like by the Echo Park Library where they've actually mm -hmm. closed a street. You know, they that's like the best the best alfresco, right? Because yeah. they, they actually close an entire street just to do a really good testing facility. And it just seems like we had months to plan for this. And it, it didn't need to be this complicated. Meanwhile, uh, this week it seemed to, to escalate the kind of chatter about a new strain being responsible for... The, multiple the, strains. Multiple strains. This is something that actually Mayor Garcetti has been pushing for a while. He was saying that he thought that the UK strain was out and like driving the surge in November and December. Now there's some uh, genomic sequencing tests in San Francisco and LA that suggest that either one or like two different flavors of one strain or two different strains. Uh, are potentially more transmissible and are driving the pandemic around here. I wrote about this a little bit on our website, thelapod.com. I am so far not 100% buying it. The, the, the new California strain they've been talking about, there's agreement that it's been in California since like May, June, July-ish, and it only really started to catch fire or to show up in these genomic sequencing tests in like November, December, it doesn't really make sense to me why it would only start to become more transmissible if it's, you know, been the same strain all along after five to eight months. Uh, it's also these genomic sequencing tests are based on incredibly small samples. We just don't really do it in in Cal or in in the United States. It's expensive. Yeah, it's other really countries slow. do, and they know very quickly if you have yeah. a small number of cases. The difference, yeah. Um, I, I think that, yeah. I, well, I I think that saying it's expensive and and really slow is is maybe is maybe too. It, it's a different focus, right? Like the reason why the the UK variant was found in the UK is because they determined that having an understanding of genomic genomic sequencing was very important to their ability to control the pandemic and in 
California and the America and uh, the United States of America at large, we have not focused on that, and so our our ability to do it is kneecapped basically. And it's had huge impacts, like you're saying, in Europe. They found this strain very quickly and were able to, and immediately imposed tighter restrictions, uh, basically total lockdown in the UK. Whereas here, I was based. I'm trying to compare it to like normal testing. It's not like you get a COVID test and it's like, oh, and this is here's your positive here's or negative your result, and yeah. here's your here's your strain. Yeah, here's your, you have the mink Danish mink strain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like that. This too, again, makes no sense. It makes mm-hmm. no sense to say this if you are the leaders of the city or the state or the county, because if it was true, we would have gone back to the strictest lockdown restrictions, right? But I think Scott pointed that out. If you really believe you're the mayor and you believe that there's this terrifying new strain just like ripping through the population, then wouldn't it be time to do something differently? It's just, it's so, it just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me if we're saying, you know, we have been experiencing a terrifying surge since November, if the political rationale is we were acting appropriately in response to what was known in November, but something huge unknown happened, which was that this other more transmissible variant became part of the, the ecosystem here locally, um, how, do, how does that exculpate you at all if it's January and now armed with this new information, the decision is to do all the same things that we were doing in November. All we're doing is demonstrating that this is the only policy regime that we want to have. That's that's it. That's all we're doing. Of the two options, do you think they don't believe, they don't actually believe that this is the like a more infectious strain that is an issue? Or that they do believe it and are, are still not doing any, anything about it. Alyssa, you want to go first? I think everybody wants so desperately to have something to blame for the failure. And so I I think that they will say that this is true without knowing it for sure. Because even if you wanted to blame, say, it on some of the other theories like overcrowding in homes, that's mm-hmm. also their fault. So they can't <laughs> say something like that. <laughs> the, the, I honestly feel like the only, the only thing that, that matters for a lot of our local politicians is that the buck does not stop anywhere within their general vicinity. And it is important to them that they keep their their friends in the wealthier classes able to operate their businesses because those turn into political donations for them when they run for higher office. And otherwise, they have basically just decided that whatever happens in terms of the surge can be blamed on people shopping at the stores that they are keeping open or, you know, some mysterious foreign variant mm-hmm. of uh, of COVID. Well, there you go about, I mean, if you want to look at the, if it was multiple variants that were from traveling, perhaps, that are being mixed around and introduced, you are not seeing bumps in cases in the wealthy neighborhoods that no. have people who travel, I know mm-hmm. for sure, 
um, who went on trips to mm-hmm. different places yeah, over the holidays, um, they're not seeing a bump in cases. So, hmm, mm. I do wonder if that would be true. Related to this outbreak, we lost another local legend this week. Larry King died, uh, presumably of COVID complications while being treated for for COVID, at least at 87. Anyone ever uh, see him around no. town? Nate Niles? No, I never did. I saw him at a Dodger game, just in the parking lot, striking physical presence. <laughs> the shoulders are so pointy. <laughs> So we're like suspenders to the suspenders. game. Yeah, we're suspenders to the game. Dodger yes. blue suspenders. Yep. I love it. Um, by the time I used to go to Nate and Al's a lot, he had already forsaken it for his own Brooklyn Water Bagel uh, mm. place in mm. uh, in Beverly mm-hmm. Hills, where he sort of used himself as a magnet to to, to get into the store. But he had his own booth at Nate and Al's for uh, for a long time. He was someone a lot of people have stories about seeing him around town. I want to flag one really exciting thing that happened this week from uh, our new federal administration. New changes around FEMA reimbursements for emergency non-congregate shelters. So places like hotels and motels that are repurposed where people experiencing homelessness or otherwise vulnerable people can have their own isolated room to be kept safer from COVID. The policy used to be that FEMA would reimburse 75% of the costs for states and cities that, that applied for this program. And this is basically how Project Roomkey happened, a combination of CARES Act funding and these FEMA reimbursements. And it's also the reason why Project Roomkey went away, because they were unsure about how long this program would last and also reimbursing the other 25% just weren't sure that they had the the money for it, whatever. So that's a big reason why it was sunsetted. Now FEMA is reimbursing 100% of the cost. And this seems like an opportunity for Project Room Key round two and learning lessons from the first iteration. We're at a much worse stage of the pandemic than we were when we started Project Room Key the last time. And seems like I've seen Council Member Mike Bonin talking about this already. Let's get this done again. Let's potentially use it as a pathway to purchasing hotels and motels, which President Biden is also proposing $5 billion, that a lot of which I'm sure would go to L.A. because his friend is the mayor to make that happen. That's just something to look at in this coming week and uh, what the city does about it. And there have been so many hotels that have just recently said they are going out of business. One most recently, the standard, uh, the Sunset Mm -hmm. location one, which used to be a nursing home. I didn't know that. It was a a senior care facility. Yeah. So it's great to use it for another purpose. So we should seize it right away and make sure that people can move in. Let's talk a little about, uh, we talked last week about Mitchell Englander, a former council member Mitchell Englander sentencing. That is coming up as you're listening to this today, right? On Monday. And Scott's got it circled on his calendar with a giant Uh, red. (laughs) Scott, do you have any predictions for what's going to, talk about this, uh, this LA Times uh, op-ed and what you yeah, think. Yeah, um, so there, there was an L, uh, LA Times op-ed by, uh, well, actually, there, there were two different ones in the LA Times over the course of this weekend, the Full Times Editorial Board and Nicholas Goldberg, of the, also of the Ed Board, 
put out two separate editorials, both saying that Mitch Englander should serve some time in prison. As we mentioned last week, that has been a, a, a subject of discussion within different motions filed by or different documents filed by the plaintiffs and the defendants' lawyers. Basically, the, the United States plaintiffs are saying that they expect that Englander should receive prison time, whereas the defendant, has uh, Mitch Englander, has put together a lot of letters, including from Sean Penn, saying that he is a very good boy and his daughters love him and he should not <laughs> and go he to went jail to Malibu or once to do, help someone. have to do community service because uh, why would, I don't know, because he, yes, he already, he already so does so much. And he's already going to do it again. Community so. service. <laughs> My expectation, so, uh, so I, I mean, I, I agree in general terms with both of the, the editorials that were published in the Times. Uh, my expectation is that Englander very well might see no jail time as a result of as a result of the guilty plea that he entered. It is really entirely at this point down to the judge who is weighing on one side the the recommendation against the the U.S. probation office against the U.S. attorney's office. The probation office was the one who entered the initial recommendation of of no jail time for Englander. You know. In the environment that we are in currently, I would hope that, and I mean that both nationally and also specifically locally, we're, we're in the middle of uh, of a very extensive corruption scandal here. And I think it would send a very strange signal to for the judge to side with the defendant Mitch Englander and saying that this is not this is not a crime that deserves the sorts of punishments that are are routinely handed out for other and frankly less systematically harmful offenses mm-hmm. than his so we will obviously be following that very closely tomorrow I thought the opinion piece handled it well by by Nicholas Goldberg saying like you know we send too many people to prison it's like a system that needs to be like decarcerated to some extent but you know just a little he should go to jail for a little while I mean like, it's, it's even two months is a very very long time to go to prison but like that 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 kind of sentence sends a message in this case about the severity of the betrayal that that takes place. Yeah, I, I think that we can, th- there is a clear signal, I think, that is sent by, you know, like the, whether or not, here's how I look at it, whether or not Mitch Englander goes to prison has more or less nothing to do with decarceration writ larger. Uh, it is, it's, so, and this is, I think, where uh, the defenses of, Rich people frequently go wrong, and um, and of course intentionally so because they, the Mitch Englander does not want to go to prison. But right. for him and his allies to say like you know that how can we as a society that is trying to turn our back on the legacy of uh, walk away from the legacy of mass incarceration send this person who has never been who's never been convicted of another crime blah 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 no no criminal record was a backup police officer, reserve police officer, et cetera, et cetera. How can we lock this man in jail and feel good about that? And the answer is that whether or not he goes to jail and if we do not send him to jail, 
that does not actually contribute in a meaningful way to ending the legacy of mass in- incarceration. Rather, we have an ongoing massive systemic issue wherein we are sending people who are poor and have had significantly diminished opportunities throughout the course of their lives because of it to jail for their entire life. And decarceration has much more to do with that than it does with whether or not Mitch Englander spends, you know, 12 months in a minimum security prison. Um, that said, it is it's entirely it's entirely the the judge's discretion, and it's hard to say what will come out. We'll we'll be watching it closely, though. One thing that we do know is that if you are a developer in downtown Los Angeles, City <laughs> Council still has your back. They are. Look, did you donate fifty thousand dollars to? A pack that was directly named in indictments against Jose Wizar. They do not want to know about it. They don't care. They will just rubber stamp whatever your project is and have a nice day. So this project in question was a, a really prominent one. This is the former LA Times building uh, bought and being redeveloped by uh, this uh, this huge developer, Ani Group. Uh, they're building these giant towers out of the building, which was bombed at one point. It's had this very long history in, in, in Los Angeles. And yeah, they gave $50,000 to Jose Wezar's wife's pack, Rochelle Wezar, who was going to run to take his seat. She did not end up running. It has not made any difference for Ani's uh, Times Square project. Well, this project. So oh, David David Zonizer's article in 2019 linked. I mean, it, it at least temporally linked the donation that was made to city council's vote to reject historic status for some of the LA Times campus, which would become this part of this two two tower development oh yeah no i'm saying it has not made any negative difference the oh fact sure that rochelle yeah. Wezar never even ended up running <laughs> sure. really for city council and her husband is maybe maybe not going to prison who knows at this point but it, it, it was approved out of the the plum committee this <laughs> week <laughs> maybe not going to prison I, i'm sorry I, I was just thinking Ooh, about uh, look I, i'm not you know i not, love the we'll see what happens i'm just like imagining a, a jury everybody just stands up and says like i am jose who like if you <laughs> condemn this man you condemn yourself yeah. this lifetime of public service who cares how much money he made off of it and, and was using it i love uh, that argument though like a lifetime yeah. of public jury service nullification no for jose wow <laughs> So good. The developer did agree to some changes pursued by the new council member for downtown, Kevin DeLeon, and they were going to have 34 units of workforce housing, and it's, that's now going to be 24 moderate income units and 10 low-income units, but the number of overall units is huge. I don't know how many, but it's... It's, it's uh, over a thousand units. Yeah, it's a very, I mean, very small you number. you look at this project, it was birthed and conceived from sin and <laughs> it is ugly as butt who, who among us 
And all the conversations about it have been about, ooh, should we save the horrible addition to the LA Times building? Like, this is the only conversation that we've been having at the city level. And then they're like, cool, change these 10 units to very low income. Carolina Miranda, LA Times, you know, columnist was also just like, this project is a failure for this reason. But that's the change that Kevin DeLeon, the Mm -hmm. affordable and housing and homeless champion of the the city is is going to be okay with that? Like yeah. are you joking me? The LA Times um and actually I don't even know what the 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 basis for so Kevin DeLeon basically asked them to make this change and I think that they just agreed to it. I don't know necessarily that they had to. I maybe they did. I but no, I, I guess I don't he probably anybody... could have swayed the the vote in in some way shape or form, but I don't I think that they basically just agreed to that. The the workforce housing thing. So workforce housing, I, typically different or differentiated from uh, very low income, low income and mm-hmm. moderate income, which is now what, what we're getting on this in this project, because it's just higher. It's higher income. It's for specific, I think, types of employees or maybe just implicitly so. Um, but it is like higher income or higher rents than would be even in a moderate income. And it might not be governed by uh, the same types of, of covenants. That is something that we saw developers doing a lot during the boom years of the 2010s or proposing a lot because it was less subsidized relatively than other types of affordable inclusionary housing, the low income, the very low income, uh, which set different thresholds for what the maximum rent might be. But that being said, the LA Times clarified, we need to say as well, Oni hasn't been charged with anything, which is different than, I mean, they haven't been charged with anything. Their name hasn't even directly come up in the the Mm -hmm. indictments that we have to date. That's different than a variety of of other corporations, we do have some that have been charged directly, uh, either they as corporations or through their principal agents, including Shenzhen Hazens and Shenzhen New World Group to Chinese developers. Oni is Canadian, but again, they, they were one of the largest investors in this most recent wave of high, high-rise condo development downtown. Carmel Partners was another one that actually signed a non-prosecution agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office. However, and one paid of, a fine. Paid a fine, $1.2 million. However, one of their executives appears to be still very much potentially on the hook for crimes committed at Carmel. That, that said, what we know about Oni so far, and that's not much, but what we know about them specifically that they donated to this pack, which was being run by Maury Goldman, who has since pled guilty and was being used despite its its being called a better future for Los Angeles or whatever, to give the, the sense that it was going to go towards multiple candidates and races. Uh, the allegations by the FBI are that it was only ever going to go to Rochelle Huizar and, and it was being used as... Uh, a funnel for her election so that Weezar could, again, by allegation, scare other people, such as, for example, Kevin DeLeon, out of wanting to run for this particular seat. This $50,000 coming for the the vote as to the historic monument status, of course, is, is just a correlation. It's just circumstantial at this point. 
However, it is similar to a lot of the other behavior that has been yep. laid out. And it would be very strange if if a developer that was as heavy of a presence in downtown during these years um, as, as Ani was, was not one of the, I, I think by my last count, like 16 or so different unnamed companies that are part of this investigation. So we don't know what their role was and there are no formal allegations against them at this point in time. I would say it is extremely within the realm of possibility that some of their conduct was affected directly by the alleged corruption of the former council member. Speaking of buildings being bombed, there was a church in uh, in El Monte in L.A. County this week that was bombed. Nobody was hurt. It was bombed overnight. And there are suggestions that this bombing was in connection with this church's status as an anti-LGBTQ and uh, misogynistic uh, hate group, essentially. This is, I had not heard of this heating up over the last few weeks, but apparently it has. There's a change.org uh, petition out of uh, El Monte that started about three weeks ago to, to get this church, the First Works Baptist Church, ousted from from Amani basically it's gathered about 15,000 signatures there were arson threats against the church uh and the county supervisor Hilda Solis made that connection in her statement like this the the this bombing is not acceptable but also what this church is up to uh is uh also very bad yeah i mean the this this uh, Solis's, Supervisor Solis's response where she says, quote, I also support the right to peacefully protest. However, this attack is wrong, does directly tie the bombing yeah. to the protest, which is not known at this point in time. However, that being said, you know, this is this is, like you said, a, a situation that has begun escalating in weeks prior to the events of this past weekend. Um, and it is a church where, like the the basically like the use of state violence against against the LGBTQ community has been roundly supported, and it is considered yes a, a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. For his part, the pastor of the church, Bruce Mejia, is is undeterred by this bombing and says that it doesn't change the convictions that are already embedded in my heart, and I'm never going to stop. So burning down my building or blowing it up does absolutely nothing but make you look bad in front of the community. That's, I think, another reason, actually, for supervisors release to not necessarily have made that connection so early before yeah. there's proof about like exactly what, what happened. Before we get to our interview with Cover City City Council member Daniel Wayne Lee, uh, I want to talk just a few things coming up this week. One, today, Monday, we're going to be hearing about Governor Newsom's new policy coming out on extending the eviction moratorium in California, which ends January 31st, and also how federal and state rent relief funds are going to be distributed. My understanding is that uh, Gavin Newsom has like basically taken this whole process out of the hands of the legislature, which happened last time, by the way, too, uh, where like he just kind of came up with his own plan and got that passed. He's doing that again uh, he's had leadership in over the last few days, but what comes out Monday is basically the product of his office and will mean a lot just in terms of how much and for how long and how much r relief tenants will get over the, the, the rest of the year, basically. Um, 
also, we did not see the count. We had heard rumors that the county was going to impose additional restrictions on retail and like business activity to stop the spread of COVID. That did not happen last week. Will it happen this week? Is it being carried over or will they say, oh, we're at the other side of this enormous peak. And so now we don't have to do anything. Also, on Wednesday, the housing committee for city council, we had a guest on the show a few weeks ago who are residents of Hillside Villa in Chinatown, that building, that there's a motion going through housing committee for the, the city administrative office to fine the $46 million for the city to buy that building, which was protected by covenants to uh, keep it eligible to low-income tenants that are expiring. Their rent was getting jacked up. Now, Councilmember Gil Cedillo is moving for the city to buy it, which would be a huge precedent-setting event in terms of adding to city-owned, decommodified housing stock and would be huge for the residents of that of that building. It wouldn't actually do it. This just comes out of committee, but it's just something that is happening this week. Let's get to our interview with Culver City City Council member Daniel Wayne Lee right now on LA Podcast. Let's welcome our guest, Culver City City Council member and Vice Mayor Daniel Wayne Lee. This is our first Culver City specific guest. He's also a candidate for state Senate in District 30, the California State Senate, which covers Culver City, parts of Inglewood, as well as part. Well, I actually I love hearing this from candidates, actually. How do you give the rundown on the size of or like of what District 30 covers? Well, I usually just tell people uh, District 30 is really what people think of when they say Los Angeles to some degree, because it covers mm-hmm. part of downtown L.A., like the bottom edge of Koreatown, Mid-City, Culver City, Century City, but then a, a huge part of South Los Angeles, you know, and a little bit of the west side, but then like a little edge of the east side as well. So it's <laughs> it's, it's really like the center wow. of the city. <laughs> like it, it, it's a huge district. And it covers all of Culver City, right? Yes. And Culver City is what we want to focus on today. It's a fascinating part of Los Angeles. It's sort of a mid-sized city in L.A. County. I think it's about the 40 or 45th biggest city in the county. It's about 40,000 people. Hotbed for business, commercial, real estate activity. But it also had a really unique election in, in 2020. You were the first black city council member elected in Culver City when you were first elected. The second was uh, elected in Yasmin McMorrin in 2020, but also a couple of ballot measures that were real victories for tenant rights and equitable housing policy. But Culver City, historically, has not always been a laboratory for this kind of policy in in L.A. It started in, in a very different way. So talk to us a little about the history of Culver City, uh, your history in it, and what makes the city kind of unique uh, today. Sure. And I'll just start uh, very briefly by talking about my history, because I think the city's history yeah. is more interesting. But <laughs> I moved to Culver City about 18 years ago, and it was... After I uh, completed my undergrad at USC and I had gone into the military, I was in the Air Force for two years, and I came back and I convinced uh, two of my best friends, hey, we should live together to save money. And they're like, eh, we did it in college. I guess it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we talked about where we wanted to live. I was, you know, pursuing entertainment at the time. So I was like, Hollywood would be good. None of my friends wanted that, even though the other wanted to live and the other is working in Hollywood currently. 
So we compromised so that I would not have to live in the valley on Culver City. And for, for me, initially, I was like, well, you know, there's not much going on, but, you know, it seems calm and like I won't have to worry about anything. And I think that's the type of impression most people who've encountered Culver City over the last uh, 20 years without going deeply into this history have thought, oh, it's a nice, small little city. It seems mm -hmm. enjoyable, even, you know, before the commercial renaissance downtown. I thought it was very instructive and it opened a path of learning to me. When I went to the um, annual legislative conference of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus shortly after I was elected in 2018, I ran into a number of black California state legislators and uh, uh, some national ones as well through Karen Bass's office. And I told them, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm on city council in Culver City. And they all just like, like they had to take a second. Some of them busted out laughing. Others were like, really? Culver City? I thought it would <laughs> never happen. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like they were shocked. Like these, like I'm from the South. Like when I moved to L.A. County, it was in uh, 1997 and undergrad to go to film school. So mm -hmm. I did not know the history of Culver City, but a lot of them related that, you know, as much as African-American people, low-income people, and people of color had problems with the LAPD, they would typically drive around Culver City yep. if they mm -hmm. had to go somewhere else. I was completely unfamiliar with that. But it did make a couple things fall into place for me. Um, particularly one of my interactions with uh, an African-American police officer the day after I had, you know, given my car an oil change and replaced all the lights. I was going to an auto body shop to get something else worked on. And, you know, on my way back, I got pulled over. And the police officer was like, license and registration. And of course, I was like, why have I been pulled over? Because it was like nine o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually he gave me the excuse, your back blinker is out. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. I replaced that myself yesterday. Wow. And of course, then I drove home. I pulled my roommate out. I was like, can you check my blinker? Everything was working fine. That incident happened prior to me, you know, knowing more about the history. And one of our residents, John Kent, who's actually the father of one of our school board members, Dr. Kelly Kent, actually wrote an L.A. Street blog story about the racist history of Culver City. And he talked about how it was advertised as a white mecca on the west side. Not a middle-class Mecca, a white mm -hmm. Mecca. And a white was the operative word. And, you know, I think there are stories about, God, I'm, I'm blanking on that famous jazz performer who was arrested here in Culver City at the Cotton Club. But it, it, it has this history both of being sort of a red light district area, because, you know, when the mm -hmm. studios were bopping, people had to hang out somewhere and a lot right. of bars and various other legal and less than legal places popped up for people to party. So it had that reputation. I actually had an ex-girlfriend whose parents, you know, were aghast when I said I lived in Culver City. And th then, then uh, you know, my girlfriend at the time was like, no, it's fine. It's, 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 it's good now. And I was like, mm -hmm. who are you talking about? It's like Mayberry. <laughs> and of course, you know, if you know Culver City film history, it literally was Mayberry, like where they oh, wow. filmed the Andy Griffith store. But for black people in particular, Interactions with police officers have, you know, had huge negative consequences for almost the city's entire history. Um, I'll, I'll end here, but like one of the big things that sort of encapsulates it for me is after the Rodney King trial and uh, a number of LAPD officers were fired, 
One of them was hired to work at the Culver City Police Department, and it took a citizen's organized uh, campaign to get that person fired eventually. The, the police chief at the time was very much not interested in firing uh, the person, even though he had participated in a well-publicized and well-viewed instance of police brutality. So that's sort of the history that I came into as an African-American man running for city council. It's, it's, such, it's such an interesting... I lived across the street from Culver City and Palms for, for several years when I first moved to L.A. And Culver City occupies this very interesting place because... It it does have it's very 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 similar to parts of the of the valley in that it has this not anonymous but like you more like a ubiquitous feel to it and and you come to it from this perspective of I feel like I've seen these places before yeah. and Culver City particularly has that I feel like in the in the sort of like white imagination of America because it's got the Gone with the Wind house it's got the Mayberry thing it's, it's got all of these particular uh, touchstones. Part of that is due to the single family neighborhoods that right. have hmm. been used in multiple <laughs> film and TV shows. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. They're exactly. related. <laughs> These are, like, are not disconnected. Yes, you know? that's the perfect segue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Culver City has also kind of been fighting that reputation for the last, for the couple decades really that you've, that you've been there, Daniel, with emphasizing great new restaurants and like the downtown area is like a nightlife hotspot. Alyssa, I'm going to quiz you on this. Do you remember the, uh, the, when the New York Times wrote its article about up and coming Culver City, the term that it used, I'm, I'm going to be horrified. They called it a a nascent Chelsea. Oh boy! Wow! <laughs> I should see Daniel's face oh, then. It's just he recoiled. <laughs> but you did have one of the most and only, I would say, successful al fresco set up during the uh, early days of outdoor dining. So perhaps yeah. that is true. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of new investment in, 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 in real estate and business. But at the same time, there have been these efforts to create more progressive housing policy at the same time. And there were two really consequential measures on the November ballot related to housing policy. One was about rent control, and that was Measure B. And Measure B actually would have undone an expansion of rent control in Culver City that passed earlier in in 2020 that you council member actually put some real effort into so talk about the process for expanding rent control in in culver city yeah i, I want to start by saying past councils did a very good job of bringing commercial development to the city mm -hmm. but partially mm -hmm. because of some of the issues i mentioned before they weren't as interested in you know residential development in fact, the money that, you know, we had set aside for redevelopment for affordable housing in particular went unused because there just wasn't political appetite uh, within mm. Culver City. And I, you know, I encountered that when I walked door to door because I talked about rent control and I talked about affordable housing. And I literally had a few people say, well, we don't need those type of people here. And I was like, mm. Um, <laughs> it's hardly even what, coded. What type of people <laughs> are you talking about? Uh, before I ran in 2016, when I lost, a number of people told me not to talk about rent control if I wanted to win. And I was like, well, I'm a renter. I think we should have rent control. So that's sort of impossible for me. I lost, mm -hmm. but I only lost by 143 votes in the final tally. Um, mm -hmm. In 2018, I continued to talk about it. And, you know, around that time, we started seeing these bills at the state level that 
you know, champion the production of housing, which I am in mm-hmm. favor of, even though I think those bills need uh, much more anti-gentrification and anti-displacement measures. Ultimately, we do need to build out a lot of housing. But once we were elected in 2018 and I came on with uh, Alex Fish, uh, Megan Sally Wells was also on, mm-hmm. already on the council. Thomas Small was also on the council. And Yoren Erickson was on the council. Once we got on and even through our strategic planning process, which was public, a lot of the focus was on housing production. And I was like, this is great, but when are we going to talk about rent control? And, you know, I just kept bringing it up because we were Mm -hmm. elected. Like, you know, me and Alex in particular, it's like, we got four years. If they don't like rent control, they got four years, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in which to, like, hate us before we get, you know, kicked out. (laughs) Um, At the same time, I did two things shortly after I was elected. I had a meeting with our police chief and our fire chief. And since I got my MSW at UCLA, I told them I wanted to bring social workers into our police and fire department to try to prevent some of the uh, unarmed killings of people of color, black people in particular, across the country from coming to Culver City. Uh, They both actually agreed because they said most of their calls, 50% or more, were mental health or mental health related. The second Mm. thing that I did is I had a brunch with a surprising number of UCLA professors who live in Culver City. Uh, And Mm -hmm. this included like, you know, Noah Zatz from the law school, Jessica Catalino from the School of Anthropology, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, MacArthur Genius Grant winner Mm -hmm. from the Ralph Bunch Center, Pedro Nagura from the School of Education and about nine other people. And we had a discussion about how they could use their research and the work that they're doing at UCLA to benefit Culver City. And secondly, you know, what was the most important thing? And everyone agreed that it was housing. Mm-hmm. Like whether it was talking about kids or like, you know, uh, seniors, it was all housing. And a subset of that group associated with the Culver City Action Network, which was the group that really organized to bring uh, sanctuary status to Culver City, came to me directly and they asked Daniel, hey, you ran on rent control. Can you introduce this? And, you know, I wasn't, you know, politics are politics within the city, but the politics of the council were still new. So I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I just present this, if it'll just be swatted down. I I think a better way to go would be to have, you know, 30, 40, 50 people come on public comment and demand uh, that we have a conversation about rent control. But based on some conversations that I had with other people before, and one was a student of one of the other professors, Pavel Munkinen, who mm-hmm. teaches in the School of Urban Planning. I had a discussion with one of his PhD students, Cal Nelson, who worked on the Prop 10 campaign. And we mm-hmm. both agree, in order to have a discussion about rent control, we first needed to have a rent freeze. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, mm-hmm. people's rents would be raised, and it needed to be retroactive mm-hmm. to that point. So basically, the groups organized. They came to city council. They asked for a rent freeze so we could talk about rent control. We talked about it for a year in various you know, sectors where we targeted renters. We targeted us mom and pops. We targeted corporate land owners. And then finally, late summer, early fall last year, we passed permanent rent control. And of course, as a result, the, no, the, 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 the Measure B campaign was birthed. Yeah. Uh, to to basically strip the rent control that the council had passed. I think I'm going to stop right there. There's a little more to this the is, story, but I feel like I've been talking a lot. This is um, <laughs> so th- this is, I think, something that we see. I mean, uh, obviously, we see a lot in California. We just saw it with Prop 22, the statewide exemption of certain classes of employees from AB5, a bill that had passed the California legislature not long prior. But anytime you 
go out and 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 make a progressive legislative change as an elected official in the state, whether you're at the local level or the state level, it seems like that is it seems like that's almost a guarantee that you will face some sort of organized pushback. In your case, it actually was something that got to the ballot. Were you thinking about that at the time that you at the time that you were actually introducing the the rent control measures or 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 was that uh, an unexpected organized effort that you faced in measure B? We knew that there would be pushback. I, I got to say, I think it was a little unexpected, at least on my part. Uh, some of my colleagues, I think, expected it. But I didn't think the pushback would be as organized as it was. I didn't think they would be able to get a ballot measure, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. But they did. So as a result, you know, following the leadership of some of the Protect Culver City Renter advocates, we, you know, we formed an anti-anti-rent control campaign, <laughs> right. uh, which was a, a no-on-B campaign. And we actually got some help from Ground Game LA in that campaign to spread the word to people that if they wanted rent control to stay in Culver City and not be subject to, like, the whims of, you know, whoever's the loudest every two years, then they should vote no-on-B. And there's a lot about the uh, Yes on B campaign that we found out that we didn't share that was sort of sketchy, but but we thought it was better to focus on the uh, the notion of keeping communities together. During the context of that conversation and our conversations with the ground game is when we talked about Measure RE as well. And yep. we were like, well, you know, if you're helping us out on Measure B... Can you uh, can you help us out on Measure RE as well? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we 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 got some help on both. The Measure RE's aegis is actually a little different. I'm not going to take complete credit for this. I had some conversations with LA city planners, uh, which is something that like I, I another process that I sort of put in place as a council member because I was in the Luskin school, and a lot mm-hmm. of the Luskin graduates just work for LA city. I knew a lot of planners at LA City Hall. Sure. So in the context of our general plan and their general plan, since Culver City is literally surrounded by LA on each side, I thought it'd be mm-hmm. good if we knew what each other, you know. Uh, yeah. is. I'm sure they were thrilled to have a politician yeah. actually listen to them for a change. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about how you were able to expand rent control because listeners, some listeners are, I'm sure, are saying, haven't you been talking about for the la- for the entire length of the show? that it's illegal in California to expand rent control. And that's why ballot measures like uh, statewide ballot measures like Prop 10 have been happening to allow that uh, to happen. What made Culver City allowed to do this and, and to what extent was it allowed to happen? So it's, it's, it's legal to have rent control. It's just with the mm-hmm. Costa Hawkins ruling, it can only apply to buildings built before 1995. And, you know, a lot of cities that aren't charter cities are just subject to whatever I think the county codes are. Culver City yeah. is a charter city. So as a charter city, we had the ability to say if we want rent control or not. And, you know, we went forward with yes. One of the things that I, I think needs to happen moving forward, one of the things that, you know, not talking about the state Senate at the moment, but one of the things that I would talk about more there is, you know, both Repealing Costa Hawkins uh, so that rent control can apply Mm -hmm. to like, you know, more buildings because only applying to a portion of the market doesn't have exactly the desired effect. It helps some people, but it still puts you in this place where it's like, well, I guess I can't move 
Or I guess if I mm-hmm. can move, if I do move, I have to u- move, make sure that the building was built before 1995. Otherwise, you know, my rent could get jacked up. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we talked a whole lot about the Ellis Act and how, mm-hmm. you know, it was originally intended to try to help tenants, but it's basically been used as a tool to flip apartment buildings and, you know, build new structures. And I think that's sort of where Measure RE comes in to some degree. We did talk a little bit when I was speaking with the L.A. planners about steps that they've been trying to take to prevent displacement, gentrification and the flipping of uh, development properties. And and they talked about, you know, well, we've been trying to get some of the L.A. City Council people to, you know, look into, uh, uh, you know, progressive property transfer tax. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's some elements in some of our policies that are sort of like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. And I, I mentioned it in passing, you know, like in one of our Culver City Council meetings uh, after a meeting I had with the L.A. city planners. And it sort of fell by the wayside. I wanted staff to look more into it, but they did not. My colleague, Alex Fish, actually looked more into it himself. And around the same time, the Measure B folks who were looking to repeal uh, rent control were moving forward. You know, he suggested that we add Measure RE, what would become Measure RE, to the ballot. Something something to vote for instead of just something to, yeah, for people I to love vote that. against. Yeah. I, before, before we get into RE, though, I think one, one, one question that I have about B, about, about rent control more generally. You, you've been in Culver City for almost two decades now. We are seeing... So just the, the context here is, is very interesting because... At the same time, Culver City, uh, actually at the same time that you went forward with your initial uh, implementation of rent control, there were a lot of, of, of like major secondary cities in LA County, particularly those that were seeing lots of employment growth, Inglewood, Glendale, I want to say, that were looking at rent control measures at roughly the same time. Not all of those went forward and, and actually got passed. But there was a lot of energy around this. And at the same time, like Hayes mentioned, uh, we were also seeing Prop 10 get shot down at the state level at the same uh, at the same election where Culver City rejected Measure B. We, we also had a second run at that at the state level with Prop 21, which was also rejected by voters and would have modified portions of Costa Hawkins. I'm curious. I'm curious as a, as a longtime resident of Culver City, what is it about Culver City that made it amenable to both the legislative approach that that you and your colleagues took initially, and also to actually having the voters affirm that decision uh, a year or so down the line, mm-hmm. when a lot of other places in California clearly aren't at that place right now. And in Culver City, I just want to point out such a short time because you're talking about running in 2016, talking about rent control and them telling you that's not okay to talk about, right. losing, running again on it in 2018 and winning, then actually getting it implemented and then having it go to the ballot and get affirmed yeah. in the space of like four years. Like that's pretty incredible. Like what, yeah, to what do you attribute that that change uh, in Culver City? Well, a couple different things. The first is just the housing market. When I ran in 2016, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people who agreed with rent control were like, mm, I agree, Daniel, but I don't know. <laughs> when I ran in 2018, I ran across more and more people whose, you know, daughters and sons 
mm-hmm. were living at home. Like in the span of two years, there was like a sea change in people's opinion. And part of this is due to, you know, the type of gentrification that's happened in Culver City. Right. On the one hand, Culver City's civic life has always been very active, but it's been dominated by, you know, sort of the good old boys and more conservative folks mm-hmm. who just show up at every council meeting, dominate the conversation, and think they, that they speak for everyone. Um, there's been a very vocal liberal to progressive edge, you know, really pushed forward initially by uh, former Mayor Gary Silbiger for, and a former city council member. I mean, former uh, school board member Barbara Honig, then, you know, Megan Sally Wells carried the torch. By the time I was elected, there were a lot more of us, and we weren't just on the city council, we were on the school mm-hmm. board as well. The people who have been moving in, though, as much as some people complain about the very large, ornate houses that come in, their politics are much more progressive. Right. Like, even mm-hmm. if they are more affluent, they're like, oh, yeah, we definitely need rent control. Or, you know, mm-hmm. we, yeah, congestion pricing, I would be interested in thinking about that. We need more, you know, bicycle infrastructure. It's it's weird because, like, the people who've been here longer tend to be more conservative and have more middle-class roots, middle-to-working-class mm-hmm. roots. And there are a lot of working-class people in Culver City, too, which is something that I think helps, but something that people almost don't believe anymore because of the ways of gentrification and because of all the shiny new houses. But I think it's a combination of, you know, that that strong sort of progressive group that's sort of been there, started by the Silbiggers and Barbara Honig, you know, shepherded by Megan Sally Wells. And then, you know, once me and Alex and Thomas and, you know, Kelly Kent on the school board were there, there were a lot more voices, you know, saying it. So there were a lot more people who were like, yes, I agree with that. And I think that's what I should do. Plus, there were a lot of new people who came in and who were like, mm, I don't know anything about this city's history, but I this is a policy that I believe sort of in an mm-hmm. objective manner. And, and you know, a lot of, as I said, <laughs> we have a lot of UCLA professors. We have, you know, mm-hmm. some LMU and USC professors as well. But the UCLA professors are very passionate and mm-hmm. proud of being as progressive as they are. They're not all progressive. But, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the ones I work with and the ones that have worked on my campaign in the past are progressive. So, you know, right. it was just like this progressive base that was built up by other uh, candidates in the past and then, then these more progressive people moving in, you know, just sort of combining. And it, it, it helps that for a very long time, Culver City has been covered and Culver City's own messaging has been like, you know, we're a progressive city on the west side. A lot of us who have lived there have been like, that's not true. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it helps that that messaging was out there because it's like, OK, if we are a progressive city, then this is the type of policy that we should be moving Gotta forward. Got to live up to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the the what I'm hearing definitely is is what I've what I've seen in, in Culver City personally. You know, the 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 rapid change in in culture over the course of the past ten years or so. But then also just a lot more people feeling the the precarity, feeling that they might not have a future in communities that they're they're used to. But it's it's pretty striking. When I when I was living in uh, or adjacent to Culver City in twenty twelve or so, it was so like the the Stony Water Tower stands out on the the skyline. It it feels very much like everything is centered around the around the studio lot there. And that is obviously very culturally different than a lot of the newcomers that have, have arrived since I moved further to the east, Apple, you know, Beats and Amazon, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it feels like a very 
different kind of employment hub than than what it would have been even 10 years ago. Yeah, to some degree, I'll just say this very quickly. I, I think, you know, Culver City is going to be a different place after the, the pan- pandemic. Part mm-hmm. of that's on purpose. Like, we want the outdoor dining and expanded mobility lanes to expand. That's a council priority. But part of that is because, you know, Amazon Studios is going to be open. Apple Studios is going to yep. be open. Mm-hmm. The food wall on the east side is going to be open. The food hall on the west side is going to be open. And, <laughs> you know, some, like, uh, 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 a gaming center where, you know, competitive games are played is going to be open. And it's going to be like, you right. know, what city <laughs> is this again? Um, the UCLA connection is so interesting to me. You um, making that explicit because, like you said, so many there's a pipeline from UCLA to the city. But when it comes to the ideas coming out of there, they put out these reports. And at the LA city level, I feel like it mostly goes into like a end of Raiders of the Lost Ark type warehouse, <laughs> top man. kind of like uh, ignored <laughs> forever. But to say in Culver, like, hey, like we have such incredible research and policy coming out of this place. We didn't talk about it, but Measure RE was advanced to some extent by Shane Phillips, who we all know at the show, had wrote about the need for a progressive tax. And I know some of his research got used in, in getting that done. It just like using this as the resource that it is. Yeah. And it just I, makes so much sense. For, for me, that was one of my priorities. And it was one of the reasons I had the UCLA Brain Trust brunch I actually mm-hmm. uh, wanted to organize a USC one, but then I got th- then I got accepted to a doctorate program, and I just you know I was doing homework. I'm in my last sure. semester in my doctorate program at USC, so it's like if if I didn't have as much homework, I would have done it at USC as well. You didn't but, want to hang out with your teachers on the weekend. <laughs> not, not as much, not as much. But but one of the other things that I did that was was very useful uh, since we're still within our general plan process, I met with the uh, chair of the urban planning department. At UCLA, I wanted to see because I know they do these salons and they do these comprehensive projects. I wanted to see mm-hmm. if we could have a group of their students work on our general plan, and they did. They they we got eighteen students. They made like a six hundred page report with the latest research. Like mm-hmm. it really took a whole lot of like the uh, time and effort off of the hands of our staff sure. and our general plan consultant, and like you know just sort of superpowered our general plan process. But I communicated with the dean of the school of public affairs, Gary Segura, that I would love to have that be an ongoing relationship, especially since so many educators live in Culver City, but also Mm -hmm. so many graduate students and quite a few undergrad students. That's that's so cool. I want to talk uh, just for a second about some state policy stuff. One of the things that you're running on is uh, California passing and enacting its own Medicare for all program, something that has been talked about for the last half decade and was advanced for a while and then seems to have been on the back burner for a little bit. You, and this is, I think, uh, related to the doctor program you're in, right? You have like a personal connection to, to expanding healthcare, right? I do. Like, I mean, I have a personal story around just dealing with healthcare and healthcare costs. I mean, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. a chronic pain sufferer. I have, I would say, sick Six chronic illnesses, two of them major, you know, four minor things like, you know, acid reflux, IBS, migraines, but two are fairly painful. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But like they're all sort of within this vague area of like, is this lupus? Is this multiple sclerosis? Is this peripheral neuropathy? You know, there's a lot of shocks and burnings. But long story short, I when I first got sick, one, I didn't know what was going on because I used to not even take medicine for a headache. I would just right. drink, drink some water and like, you know, go sit in a quiet place until it was gone. 
But like for me, it was like two or three years of going to a doctor every two or three weeks. And then once I did get medication, especially the neurological stuff, it was more expensive than my monthly rent with insurance, with insurance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just got frustrated with the, the Western medical system. And I was just like, I'm going to find a way to manage this. I don't want to see another doctor because I've seen a doctor, you know, every two to three weeks for the last three years. And I'll, I'll figure out what's going on with me when I'm in a better place. This over the last almost three years since I've had still private insurance, but, you know, more or less completely paid for by the government. Mm-hmm. I've seen doctors like every two or three weeks this past year. And I think the most that I've paid like altogether is like $300. And that's for like mm-hmm. 25 visits, like a two days in the hospital, you know, multiple like procedures, multiple specialists. And, and for me, I'm like, I, I think everyone should have that opportunity, especially if they don't know what's wrong with them. I think one of the things that we miscount with uh, medicine is the anxiety yeah. uh, that you have, both from not knowing what's going on and not knowing whether or not if you pay for this procedure, if you pay for this test, you'll still be able to make rent that month. You know, and that's that's not a choice that people should have. People shouldn't have to choose medicine or rent or medicine or rent or food. And we're almost always the fifth to seventh largest economy in the world. If there are countries and there are many <laughs> who could have universal health care in like the 50s and 60s, uh, it's something that we can do. I mean, I hate mm-hmm. the, the the notion of American exceptionalism, but. Where, where, where's our ego around this? Like, sure. right. California exceptionalism, I like. <laughs> well, I, I, I like it when we do it right, but I, I'm very critical of that, too. I think there's a sure. huge difference between the California that, like, people think yes. exists and the huge income inequality that we have. California, the potentialism, I guess, compared to what can be accomplished at the federal government. I, I, I love the idea of exerting an effort to get something done here first. One question I have, and I've never really asked this or even thought about it, but and, and the answer might be no, but do you see any potential as being a municipal elected official to expand health care access, since this is a focus of yours, at the, at the city or county level to, to use those levers uh, to advance that kind of policy? Or does it, can it really only be done at the, at the state and federal level? I think ideally it would be done at the state and federal level. I think a city the size of Culver City – Definitely sure. cannot do it. I, I think if we were to look at other things, and 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 um, in San Francisco they have the Healthy San Francisco program, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. expanded healthcare access. But it was really like an expansion of low cost health insurance, and you know, single payer is different. Um, and and I, I think the benefits of single payer are much better. One of the things. One of the phrases I really need to write down because I use it a lot is, is, is it's really hard to track the benefits in one system when they primarily go to other systems. And a lot of the mm-hmm. benefits of preventive medical care, you know, they, they manifest in the school system. You know, they manifest mm-hmm. in, you know, emergency rooms. Uh, they manifest in the lack of 911 calls for mental health emergencies because people have access to low-cost mental health care. There are incredible benefits. But to answer your question quickly, I've been working with a single-payer health care advocacy group here made up of a lot of Democratic Party delegates and just single-payer advocates. One of the things that we have been talking about is, okay, we do have a pretty kick-ass all-female board of supervisors right now. Mm -hmm. Is there a way for them to take up some type of universal health care for the county of Los Angeles? 
Our answer so far is maybe. Okay. We're, we're, we're still looking into That's it. That's not bad. I mean, <laughs> LA County definitely has the if money. Anyone, they can do it. Yeah. They have yeah. like systems in place already. Like uh, in my doctorate study, I'm actually looking at trying to create a program where the, the systems sort of interwork, their, their data talks to each other so that we can actually, you know, not just talk about social determinants, but treat people in that manner with data from across all of their interactions with the social service system. But yes, I think it's possible, but I think it would be much more powerful to do it on the state level. And, you know, we've been closed three times in the last 15 years. Two governors vetoed it, and then Speaker Rendon tabled SB 562. Obviously, the two times it was vetoed, a lot of corporate Democrats voted for it because they knew it would be vetoed. But, you know, that that's, goes back to what we were talking about before, the potential of California and, you know, mm-hmm. the fake California that's in our imaginations. Sure. Yes. And the California <laughs> that we can make real if we just go for it. Council member Daniel Lee, uh, uh, the council member and vice mayor for uh, Culver City, candidate for California State Senate to represent District 30. The primary is on March 2nd. Thank you so much for joining us today. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. And thank you for listening. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing the show. We will be back next week. Bye-bye.